the final song that we sang this morning before coming to this time. Verse uh, 3 had said this. It said, he sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before the judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer. Oh, be jubilant my feet. My God is marching on. This idea that he's sifting out the hearts of men. We cannot see another's heart. We can hear their words. We can see what they are displaying. We can see their actions. But their hearts, God alone sees it. And it is easy for the best of us to be deceived about others. Whether or not they are truly in the faith. Whether they truly know Christ. Scarier than that. It is possible for an individual to be deceived regarding their own salvation. And so as we look here in this chapter and we look at some of the things in the early evangelistic expansion of the church. The gospel has come as we know finally it's pushing beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And Philip has gone down and he has preached the gospel in Samaria. God was granting many miracles to be done by his hands. And, and a multitude of those in Samaria were turning to Christ in faith. It had told us in this chapter, chapter 8, that before Philip had come down, there was another man who had come to that Samarian region. And his name was Simon. We saw him a little bit before. Simon was a sorcerer or magician. What he would do is he would do some works of power, maybe some kinds of predictions, some forms of incantation, whatever it may be in the wielding of dark and deadly arts and evils. Things men ought not do. Remember, God had forbid the children of Israel to go anywhere near witches and those who practice magic, necromancers, and all of those who do, who make charms and incantations, they were to have nothing to do with those things. Simon had come in there, and before Philip showed up, everybody thought, this is a great man. They even were believing, this is a great man. He's kind of the demonstration of a great God's power. But then in the divine purposes of the one truly great God, Philip came. And Philip began to do in their presence miracles that exceeded what Simon had done. And so Simon himself was taken aback. And not only was he taken aback, the scriptures go on to say here in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Okay, Now, I want us to be really careful here. If we look at these words closely, I'm going to show you a few passages that help to really strengthen the warning of what we see and what we hear. Now. I'm tempted in my, in my natural inclination to hear that Simon the magician, who had formerly made himself out to be someone great, he has clearly noticed someone has come 
representing a far greater God and a greater power than his imaginary one. And it, when it says, even Simon believed at the beginning of verse 13, I'm, I'm almost ready to jump up and say, hallelujah, praise God, he believed. But the question sometimes comes, what did he believe? Romans is, is going to say things you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Uh, remember when Jesus is interacting and says all these uh, have gone away. Are you disciples going to go away as well? Peter's response is, you know, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The believe and to know. The believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It shows that there is a level of belief that is wrought by God the Spirit. That is saving and transforming. But be warned. Because there is a form of superficial expression of belief. That's not saving. One of the things that, that, that's kind of woven into the language here. And it's, I think it's so amazing the way God allows this language to be put in the scripture. So that we are strengthened against those who say, hey look. I believed, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And we say, but brother, you're carrying on in sin. You're not walking with the Lord. You're living in a way that brings shame on his name, disobedience to him. How can you say that you're his and, and live like the world? How can you do that? Hey, I believed. Look, I've got a baptism certificate here. I can tell you the day and the hour. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm good. When I prayed the prayer, walked the aisle in church, the pastor told me, now you're saved. Your salvation can never be lost. I'm good. And we say, brother, you're not good. If you're walking in sin, it may be you are not yet born of God. Because as it tells us in 1 John 3, those that are born of God cannot practice sin. When we are born of Christ, we now walk in the light because we're children of the light. There is a change that takes place. But the scripture still uses words at times that sound a lot like salvation. I'm going to show you a few of these today that we ought be cautious. We can't see the heart of men. God can, but look what it says here. Simon himself, I'm in verse 13, believed him. And so in the early expansion, we're looking at false followers. We're going to see this idea beyond just Simon's example. We're going to see it traced out a little in the New Testament to see the scope of this warning because it's very serious. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, again, Philip's the, the person who was there, but I would love to say that here something more like he continued in Christ. He continued to grow in the word. But it seems that somehow, like the people had become attached to him because he had done great signs of power, it, it begins to open up to us that Simon is not actually attaching himself in faith and baptism 
to Christ as he was supposed to. He was attaching himself to Philip. Just as the people of Samaria were attaching themselves to him. Because look at the emphasis even in his mind. And seeing the signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. So what drew him to make his profession of faith? Was it a conviction of sin? Was it that because of the grace of God, he now sees the futility of this world and loves God and his son more than anything in this world? Is that what it is? Wouldn't that be glorious? But rather... He sees the signs and he's amazed. And we're going to actually see unfold as it goes through here. And the apostles come down and he sees the amazing sign of the spirit being given through their laying on of hands. He's like, I want that. Philip's got more than I do. I want in on that. These apostles have even more than Philip. I want in on that. But what's he want in on? The grace? The changed life? Or does he want in on the demonstrations of power? Now, I want to be cautious to judge a man's initial response. But I do want to draw your attention to a very similar circumstance in John chapter 2, verse 23 and following. Here it says this, and, and it should sound similar in content to what I've just said. But this is Jesus rather than Philip. It says, now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. What? When they saw the amazing signs. When they saw the signs that he was doing. So why did they believe? A convictions of sin and a surety that there is no salvation apart from him. No, they believe. And so there's a sense in which, part, here's part of the challenge. It was not going to be enough in that historic era for them to merely believe that he is the promised Messiah. Because sadly, the prevailing understanding of the Messiah by the Jewish people was flawed. It didn't have him as the Lord the son of God. It didn't have him as the suffering savior. Who would deliver his people from their sins. In their mind. The Messiah was far more politically driven. And far more people of Israel oriented. They expected when the Messiah comes. We rise. No longer Caesar and Rome. But it will be the Messiah and Israel. We who are pressed down under others' feet. We who are the tail. We will be the head and not the tail. We will rise. They will fall. Jesus doing these messianic signs. They believed in his name. They, th he's the one. We take him. But. And this is, this is such, the next verse is one that for the longest time can cause your head to spin. If you don't understand that they were believing, but they weren't believing 
the full reality of who Christ is. Because what does it say after that? Many believed, and, and again, my heart's ready to jump out. Amen. Praise the Lord. But, verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. For he knows what is in every man's heart. I think, wow, we've got to understand that. The question in the end, more than whether you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, voiced some sort of agreement with doctrinal truth. The question is this, has Jesus entrusted himself to you? Has he come in the power of the grace of God by the gospel and the spirit, uniting you to him in faith, making you a new creation in Christ Jesus, causing you to be born from above? What a, what a terrible thing to hear. Now, we be careful lest we judge Jesus in this. They believed. Why wouldn't he? They believed because he knew what they wanted. There were times, remember, when they came together and they were going to forcibly make him king. And he would take off. Go right out from them, out into the wilderness. They did not see him for who he was. Some would, as he's in a boat and crossed to the other side of the sea, they would trek all the way around the sea. And Jesus would say, you know why you came? You came for bread. <laughs> you came because I gave you food. You want more bread and fish for free. Men would follow for a multitude of reasons, all of which people might stand back and say, wonderful. But Jesus sees through the superficial. And he sees the heart. And it says he would not entrust himself because he knew what was in all people. Needed no one, verse 25, to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And here's what's in man. Apart from Christ entrusting himself to you, you will never truly come to him on his own terms. You remain focused on a savior and a God who can give you what you want now. Oh, uh, when I go on from this, remember this, that's one evidence of it. Then further in John 12, it tells us of another occasion where it says in John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. And you're about, we're about ready to say, oh, shame on those guys. But it's not only shame on those guys who didn't believe that he was the Messiah in providing those signs. It's shame on those who only believe with a fleshly understanding. Remember, Paul says, even at one point, we used to look at Christ and assess him and judge him according to the flesh. But we do that no longer. Remember, Jesus says, the words that I speak are spirit and life. The flesh avails nothing. People, you know, that it, it's more than that. And that's why I say this with great frequency. The language of Christendom that's crept in even to good circles urges people. And it tells them, put your faith in Christ. 
which basically makes faith something resident in them and they select where they will put it. But that's not really what the scriptures teach us. And we know very well the clear words of Ephesians chapter 2, don't we? Verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith. And what about that faith? It's not of yourselves, or some translation, not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. If I would say, hey, look, I put my faith in Jesus. That was the right God. Because there's only salvation in his name and no other. And you put your faith somewhere else. I made a better choice. I was wiser in where I put my faith. That's wrong. It's a mistake. We call people to have faith in him. Not to put faith in him. And if they and and it is God Himself who gives that. It, it is what? Not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So it's not a question of you must put your faith in Him. He by His grace must put faith into you. And He puts in a living and active faith. Not a dead faith like James warns about that's just all words, but not a life that follows. You want to show that you have faith? You show by your works. You don't, you're not saved by your works, but that your faith is a true faith that is a gift of God. The, the factuality and salvific nature of that faith is justified by the works it produces. We don't want to miss that. Remember, because uh, look what, ha what it says of Simon, because it is heartbreaking as we go down in verse 18. And then we're going to go to a few other passages. It says this. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given on through the laying on of hands of the apostles. And I do want to note this very clearly here in scriptures. The uh, biblical apostles existed only in the first century. We recognize this of those qualified. Paul was the last of all qualified, having seen the risen Lord. And it was through the laying on of hands of apostles that the spirit was given. It's even stated here. So we want to be careful because people run crazy with that. They see laying on of hands, skip a few words, spirit is given, and they make a new plan. No, no, no. We never make a plan by skipping a few words. More than that, you even never make an entire plan from just a few words in only one passage. We're going to see that towards the end of what we look at today. But listen to what it says here. Um, verse 19. Saying to them. You know, he offered to give them money. Saying give me this power also. It's already evident. He, he, he's not asking them. In order to serve the purpose of God in Christ. He's not asking and wanting this for the betterment of the church. He wants to pay for it. This is so far the most impressive thing I've seen. I want to be able to do that. 
I'm willing to pay for it. Is his heart in the right place? No, it isn't. And, and he, the, the sad thing is at this point, he probably doesn't even know it. But Peter's going to make it clear to him. He says, give me this power that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Spirit. What he doesn't realize is it wasn't going to be anyone they laid their hands on that would receive the Spirit. Actually, the, the apostles would, were, came down in order to pray for them that they would receive the Spirit. All right? So it wasn't just the laying on of hands and it was pray. And the receiving of the Spirit wasn't going to be by everyone, but by those who had believed. So we'll see a few more of this, but following it out, focusing on Simon here, he says in verse 20, Peter say to him, may your silver perish with you. That's, that's the first heavy statement, isn't it? He's just declared, you're a man who's still perishing. Not been delivered from death to life. This is, a, this is a frightening notion. Secondly, he says, because you have thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. All right, you are perishing. Your heart is not right before God. And then what does he say? Repent, therefore... Of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible. The intent of your heart may be forgiven. And here's the, here's the strongest statements in this passage. For I see that you are in. Present active. You are in the gall of bitterness. And the bond of iniquity. And here's the reality. We know this. When Christ sets us free, we are free indeed. Amen? When he sets the prisoner, prisoners free, he breaks their bonds. He brings us out into a new light. All is changed. This man, in his sad condition, has heard the gospel. Has seen the power of the Spirit at work. Has even experienced the converting grace in the lives of others. He's impressed with what he sees. And wants to participate in the power. In the society. In the benefits. But there is no one that seeks after God. No, not one. We remember those words, right? As long as you know me, I'm never going to let you forget those words. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and following. How, what is it? There is no one who understands. There is none who is righteous. There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. Are there people who seek after peace? Hope in an afterlife? Blessings in this present world? Health and prosperity and victory. I mean, there are a multitude of things that we know eternally and in earnest, God alone only provides. 
but they seek after those things. None seek after God. And Simon is proved to be one of those ones who was seeking after all of those benefits. But not Christ. Not God. His thrill wasn't in the amazing reality that men would be granted of God to receive his spirit and have his spirit dwell in them. That itself should have just laid him out. But that's not where he was. Where he was, I want to be able to do that. And the worst part is, you have neither part or lot in this. <laughs> uh, you're not going to be doing this. Given the spirit by the laying on of hands. Because you don't even have the spirit. You're apart from this. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You're still in your sin. And then the, the words that Peter says are so good. He called him in verse 22 to repent of this wickedness. And, and he tells him. So he's told him you need to pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart will be forgiven. What does he tell him? Repent and cry out to the Lord for mercy. And sadly, what is Simon's response? Look what it says in verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me so that none of the things that you've said will happen to me. He's still thinking who, who has the power. Peter. Peter didn't say, you need me to pray for you. Peter told him what? You repent and you pray for forgiveness. But his focus was still on what? The externals. The man. The servant. The group. The building. The church. The society. The organization. The, the, the religion. His focus was all external. Because at one point he thought he was something great. And probably onward he said... And, Philip came, and how great is Philip that he was able to save all of these people? He was able to turn them from their gods. Did Philip turn them? No, but Simon seemed to think so. And when Simon is told, repent and pray. I wish that I would have heard in the passage, he said, he would have said, I will you also pray for me. But there's no hint of him. Receiving the instruction to pray. And understanding. Your salvation doesn't rest. In the apostles. As significant a role as they had in the early church. They were not the dispensers of salvation. There is one who saves. And that is God alone. Of his power and by his will, we have been born again to a new and living flesh. Again, I want to show you something of those warnings. With regard to this, I think with great fear, if we had gone around and we had taken interviews with the saints in Samaria. Do you think that Simon is saved? Do you think that Simon is saved? They probably would have said, I think so. 
I mean, he seems to be following Peter around, I mean, Philip around everywhere he goes. You know, he's also been baptized, which should mean that he's turned from everything else and resting his hope and identity in Christ alone. He seemed to the eyes of men to have done everything right. In Matthew chapter 13, the scriptures give us the parable of the soils. And you remember that parable of the soils, don't you? And there are four different kinds of soil. The first is the path, and then the rocky ground, and then the thorny ground, and then the good soil. In those four different soils that are spoken of in Matthew chapter 13, how many of those soils were saved? Salvation was only in the good soil. They're the only ones that bore fruit. The others did not. But the others are given that we might look at that and see these are the varied responses to the word of God preached. And some of them look a lot like salvation. They really do. And so we, uh, if you're in Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Verse 20 is where Jesus is explaining to the apostles the meaning of this parable. Because they didn't really understand. Because yet they did not have the spirit within them as they would after his, he's glorified. It says this in Matthew 13, 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So what does that look like to us? They heard it and there was a visible response. Whatever, whether it's uh, I see your hand or look up at me. Through the years, we've seen all kinds of different strategies used in Christianity to somehow recognize who the grace of God might be working upon. And you've probably seen it in the course of your experience too. Uh, once upon a time, coming out of the days of the, of the revivals under Finney, getting people to walk the aisle. As time went by in certain environments, that became harder. So it's just, while I, all heads remain bows and eyes remain closed, if you would just lift your hand to let me know that you've responded to this. Yeah, I see your hand. Yes, I see. It, have you, right? And then as time went by, it was, just look up at me. Just not even raise your hand. And, and we're, it's, it's just keep dialing it back and then yes i see you for all of those who have looked at me raised your hand you are now in christ you are now a new, new creation you are they god only knows we don't know it says that those on the rocky ground they immediately received it with what joy there is a momentary effusion of emotion a momentary emotional ecstasy and experience that would lead them and those around to say, yep, 
They've been touched. They've been anointed. They've received it. They are. But listen to the words of Jesus. What's interesting is this. As some of you may not know. There was another man by the name of Asahel Nettleton. Who was also a preacher in the second great awakening. And unlike Finney. They would actually set rows at the front. That were for those who had come under conviction of the preaching in previous nights. To sit at the front. And he would urge them on leaving each night. Plead with God that you might be born again. Plead with God that he would have mercy on you a sinner. And forgive your sin for Jesus sake. And these people who were feeling a convicting work of the spirit of God. They would sit on the front. Waiting and pleading and praying God save me. Knowing that God would be the one who would take the initiative. And that they would be broken. And made new. Not just an immediate response with joy. And the joy can often come. Because hey. You were going to be under wrath. You were going to burn forever and ever. But now. Heavenly bliss. Glory. Mansion, 40 bedrooms. What? Where did I, people come up with all kinds of nonsense to get people excited and to get people joyful? But even the even the true gospel, Jesus is not here speaking about a false gospel. He's talking about the true preaching of the word of God. There can be a momentary, superficial, emotional response of men that still is short of saving grace. And you say, Jason, how do I know? Well, it's not for you to know. It's for him to know. With regard to others, it's for you to love them. To provoke them to love and good works. To warn them and encourage them and come alongside of them. Walk together. Bear one another's burdens. Exhort one another. This is what we do. The, the final verdict is in the hands of God. We don't know. Now, in the course of sustained time, we will have the opportunity to see some fruit born. But even then, sometimes what we see that we would readily declare fruit may not be fruit. Well, they were so joyful. I mean, for, for days afterwards, I mean, they, they just, you know, the, there was a smile on their face. You could just see the joy of the Lord was their strength. You could just see it. Sometimes we think that itself was the fruit. What did Jesus say? Yet he has no root. He has no root. If you have not that root, if you are not connected, truly connected to Christ, are you saved? No. We're not going to bear fruit on our own. Unless we abide in the vine, unless we are attached to that root, there is no hope. But there can be seeming a moment. It sounds so strong. Not only that. It says, he endures for a while. What's a while? I don't know. 
The wild could be different for different people. It says, when tribulations and persecution arise. So the wild could be a very long while if he doesn't face persecutions and trials for a sustained season. But when they arise, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He had no root. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Now, the first person heard it, and then because of earthly troubles and difficulties, he gives up. Proves he was never connected to the root. He had no root at any time. The next one, it's not difficulties of this world. It's the desires for this world. Which is sometimes even more dangerous in our experience, isn't it? Because what happens? As for the one sown among the thorns, he hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. There's no fruit. What does Jesus say over and over again? You will know them by their fruit. We're reminded of these words in Matthew 7 verse uh, 13 and 14. He says, wide and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many are those who will find it. But narrow is the gate. And hard is the way that leads to life. And few are those who will find it. And so this is why it gets a little unnerving. When there is a method of ministry. That multitudes of men are flocking after. You got to sit back for a moment and begin to scratch your head and say. Why are they running that way? Maybe I ought to listen to what's being said over there. And does it sound like the road is wide and easy? Does it, does it sound like, you know, in my mind, uh, I put together in, in certain experience, um, uh, outside of Christianity, there are things that take place in India and Mauritius that are called pilgrimages, which Hindus think they have to do to win some sort of favor and some sort of cleansing with their gods. Some in India that you would see on pilgrimages are in absolute dire circumstances and you wonder how they're going to make it. Trekking by foot, barefoot, hundreds and hundreds of miles, uh, carrying with them pails to fill water from what they believe is a sacred river, then putting those water on a stick and carrying that all the way back to their home so that they can give some to their kids. Going through so much for something that has no accomplishment. But on the other side, Mauritius has the same pilgrimages. Also Hindus, but it's different. There, everybody's wearing Nike and Adidas. Everybody's wearing hats. This pilgrimage is sponsored by Toyota. And, and every 
200 feet or so is water, Pepsi, Coke stand, food, snacks, fruit. It's like, wow, this is a tough one. Yeah. Uh, which pilgrimage do you want to go on if they both have the same result? And, and there are those who prove themselves more devout that take off their shoes in Mauritius. And they walk on the hot road as a truck in front of them wets it so that it's not so hot. It's like, wait a second. They're removing all of the struggles. And, and as a result, generally at times when I see, would see a pilgrimage in India, there'd be one or two people sprinkled here or there. Not a whole lot of them. <laughs> but in Mauritius, you got big groups of them packed together. Maybe there's also a playlist going for them. And they're just enjoying the pilgrimage. Look, in the grace of God, there is much peace, joy, and hope in the Spirit. No doubt about that. But there is a peace that passes understanding in the midst of a world of trial and tribulation. There is a peace that prevails in persecution. And there is a truer treasure that draws our heart's desire more than any of the things of this world. Right? You can have this whole world. Give me Jesus. You can take it all. Kingdoms, riches, glory. I don't need it. Jesus goes on to say, remember, what does he say? If you do not deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, I listen to the words of Christ. And then I listen to the words of so many modern message makers. And what do they say? They don't say Jesus is deny yourself. Jesus says you must love me more than anyone else in this world. You must be willing to give up all that you have. Now what do they say? Yeah. You want it? Think of what you want most. He'll give it to you. It's not deny yourself. It's if you want to indulge yourself. Follow Jesus. If you want to enjoy yourself, follow Jesus. And it goes with all of these earthly appeals, which I have to tell you this. All of those, those earthly appeals and earthly promises will ultimately fall so miserably short of the glory of the promises and inheritance that he has reserved for us. I'll tell you this. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven. Do we want to produce a bunch of prodigal sheep? Hey, demand some of your inheritance now. Believe him for a raise. Believe him. Well, wait, no. You know what? I, I believe this. Even if the fig tree doesn't blossom. Even if there's no fruit on the vine, if the labor of the olives fail and the fields yield no wheat, even if the flocks are cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, if I got nothing, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. 
I will glory. I will joy in the Lord of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Yeah, I'm saved. What does this matter? What does anything else matter by comparison? Oh, the scriptures warn. Jesus says, John 15, 8. My father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. You don't become a disciple by fruit bearing. When you, by union with Christ, bear much fruit, you prove you are a disciple. Because he's the vine, we're the branches, right? He's the root of which we grow out of. And John 15, 5 says, whoever abides in me and I in him, if we are united in him, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that what? Bears much fruit. I'm always taken a little aback by those words. Bears much fruit. And I get a little nervous because some dear believers, brothers and sisters saying, all right, what's minimum fruit? Tell me minimum fruit line because I want to make sure I hit that. No, no. All right, if that's even your question, if that's what you're setting out as your goal, minimum fruit line, maybe your heart is still in darkness. Maybe you're still in the bond of iniquity because your heart ought to be what? Wait, in bearing much fruit, we prove to be disciples and God is glorified. I want to glorify him as much as I possibly can. It doesn't become about minimum to get in. It becomes about maximum because he is glorious. Right? Oh, Paul warns in 2 Corinthians, I have so much to say. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians about how he's in frequent danger in chapter 11, verse 26. Frequent danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. And he says, danger from false brothers. Oh, what a scary term. False brothers. And you don't always know who they are. Same thing in Galatians 2, 4, and 5. He says, yet because of false brothers. Secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out our freedom. He says in Acts 20, verse 29 to those elders in Ephesus. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among the sheep. They're going to be a part of your group. And from among yourself will arise those. Speaking twisted things to draw disciples after themselves. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, While evil, post, evil people and imposters. The KJV there says seducers. That's not the word. It's imposters. Charlatans. Fakes. Will go from bad to worse. The worst part it says. Deceiving and being deceived. Many of them, like the Judaizers of this day, thought they were serving God while promoting a religion rooted in works rather than the grace that is ours in Christ. Rooted in the law instead of the one who fulfilled the law 
and indeed is the, is the teleos, the goal and end of the law to all who believe. We're warned in Matthew 7, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And at times they go out from us, and some of us say, I, I, I don't know how that brother, that sister, left the church. They must have lost their salvation. There's no losing salvation. It tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. It goes on to say, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. So sometimes, until the person turns away, you and I were 100% sure of their salvation. Sometimes we're confused because men who have been ministers for many years and then turn away and deny the faith. And we think, what? Men who, strangely it even happens, men who at some point are evangelical preachers in ministry later become atheists and God deniers. And we think, what happened to them? How did they lose their faith? Well, because all maybe they had was their faith, not the faith that is the gift of God. God's grace at work within us. Because we're actually going to just focus on false followers today. But I, I, we need to end by looking at this. Philip, some would say, well, Philip baptized someone who proved not to be true. Shame on you, Philip. How's he supposed to know? He's not. He calls them to repent, believe, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And, and the secret inner workings of God grace will work themselves out in time to, uh, for us to see. But they're his work. But look. It tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Paul says of Demas. Demas was one who to him was another Timothy and Titus. And what does he have to say? Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. Why did Demas leave? He was in love with this present world. What did Simon's words indicate as he talked to Peter? He was in love with this present world. It's all about money, riches, power, acclaim, esteem. All that in the eyes of men. But listen, we know this, the scripture says. I'm sure of this, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Where there is a root, there will be fruit. I'm sorry that rhymed. But it's a fact. Where there is that connection, where he has begun it, it will work itself. Where you have begun it, you're not getting anywhere. Because you're, there's a way that seems right to man and its end is destruction. No one seeks after God. So everything that begins with our initiation... Yeah, it, it, it's running off a blind cliff. 
without knowing it. But when it begins at the initiating grace of God, he brings it to completion. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus says. But you know what that also reveals to us? What happens when the Father draws someone? <laughs> when the Father draws, they come. And we often uh, skirt around that language in John 6. But, with the, but the word for there, uh, uh, unless the Father draws him, is the same warning that it says, what will you do if you owe a man money and he come, lay hold of you and drag you to court? Now, generally, if the guy comes up to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about suing you to get my money back. You want to come to court with me? Is that going to work? No. And so what he would do is he would lay hold of him or he would bring officers from the debtor's prison to come with him and lay hold of him and bring in him. The drawing to court was not an option. The drawing of grace is abundantly transforming. And there is a difference. Surely there is. Because God is able to take someone. And make them willing in the day of salvation. Because yeah the man who's going to court. You know he may be like the toddler tantrum. Who just locks his feet down. Says I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. But when the grace of God draws us. We say I'm coming. And I'm running. And I'm not looking back. Amen. Our time is done for today, so let's pray. Lord, we are just fearful at the strong warning in your word of how there are so many false followers. And I give this warning to these brothers and sisters that you've brought here that we might not any of us take confidence in something that we have done in the past we might not take confidence in some sort of memberships or associations, some responses or some feelings or some emotions that we know that we had, but that if we are to have confidence, it's in Christ alone and the evidence of his ongoing gracious work in our life. We thank you that when you set us free, we are free indeed. When you unite us to yourself, you bring forth fruit. When you reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Christ, there is nothing in this world we desire more. God, if there's any here that have not experienced that, may you be pleased to reveal that to them and move their hearts to cry out to you for mercy. And may you, O oh God, be pleased in the grace of your gospel, in the working of your spirit, to bring life and light and hope in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.